April 6th, 1970. Sean Flynn, son of leading man of the golden age of Hollywood, Errol Flynn, disappears without a trace while working as a photojournalist in Cambodia. Sean and his colleague Dana Stone were never seen again, and over half a century later, what happened to both men remains a mystery. Were they kept captive for years by the Viet Cong, killed by the Khmer Rouge, or something else? Join me on this multi-part special episode as I look at the stories of Errol Flynn, his son Sean Flynn, and that of Dana Stone, the complex history of a country close to my own heart, and the many theories of what befell the two men. Primary sources for part one of episode 130 are Vanity Fair, NBC News, Turner Classic Movies, Tasmanian Devil, The Fast and Furious Life of Errol Flynn, The Guardian, The Rake and The Independent Island. Welcome back to episode 130 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. I hope that you're all well and looking forward to a special multi-part episode, the first multi-parter I've done in a while. I think this will be three parts. Um, And the reason for that is I've wanted to do it since week three and I've always put it off (laughs) and now it's finally happening. First off, um, I want to say welcome to new patron Elizabeth. Welcome on board. Now, April 14th was two years of this podcast. I thought it was like the start of May, but it was actually April 14th, two years ago in 2020, that I released the first episode on Carla Valpeo's. Unfortunately, since that, no movement has happened on that case as far as I am aware. Um, but I want to just thank you guys for sticking around for two years of it. Two years can be, seem so slow, but so fast at the same time. Um, yeah, it just blows me away. How can it be two years already? But one thirty feels like a nice kind of um, round number to celebrate two years of. And it's important that I do this case, I think, at this point in time. A lot of feedback on the Annecy shootings episode I did with Nate. Um, it seems overwhelmingly, according to polls um, on Telegram and, and Patreon, that you guys um, seem to be on Team Nate in regards to what we thought went on with that. I don't want to kind of ruin anything for people who haven't listened to that one yet, so you'll have to go back to to listen to that and see what you think. Um, but I'm not even sure I'm Team Felicity anymore, to be honest. I could be Team Nate at this point in time. I continue to think about that case. Um, So many people brought up some interesting things. Patron Mary Bell um, said something really interesting that just made me think, why did neither of me nor Nate think of this? It was, they could have had a tracker on their car. (laughs) Like, it was only 2012, it wasn't 1912. (laughs) And I was just like, how did how did we not think of that? So yeah, um, let me know what you think as you get to that episode. But I think most people think something is a bit afoot uh, with a family member of someone involved in that. <clears throat> now, 
This episode will be three parts, um, I believe. I was going to do this episode in the first five episodes um, I was ever going to do <laughs> back in 2020. Sean Flynn and Odette Hofton were, I think, the first two names that I put on my spreadsheet that's now blown out to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Um and the reason for that was I've read about Sean before and I obviously, being a fan of old Hollywood, knew who his dad was, Errol Flynn. And um, I always just found his case very interesting on top of that um, because I love Cambodia um, and have, you know, had great experiences in that country. So I was going to take two weeks off um, and it's been almost two weeks, but what's going to happen is I'm going to do a an episode a week for this, um, a part a week, because really it's, it's like a lot for me to go back into and sort through. And I've really decided to segment it. So part one is going to talk about the life of Errol Flynn and I'll explain why in a minute, um, why he is important. I think, uh, to paint a picture of who Sean Flynn became part two, we'll talk about Sean and his colleague Dana, um, and the situation that they walked into in Cambodia in 1970. Um, and a little bit about my own experiences as well there. Sorry if you don't like my own stories, but I did teach English there. I've had some interesting experiences there and it is a massive interest for me. Um, so if you don't like that, I, I mean, too bad. Um, and part three, we'll talk about theories of what happened to Sean and Dana and kind of wrap things up. I think that's how it's going to work. I think part one will be a little bit long, uh, but we'll see. This case, Sean Flynn. Now, I just want to say very quickly, the name Sean Flynn may sound familiar to you and it's pure coincidence. I have interviewed a man called Sean Flynn on this podcast who has probably seen this episode pop up and is very confused um, for a second. So Sean Flynn is the uncle of Ryan Roth who went missing in Bali um, in 2020. And so I've interviewed him. Just coincidentally, his name is Sean Flynn. Ryan Roth also sometimes uses the surname Flynn as well. Um, and at the time, t- two years ago, almost when I interviewed him, I said to Sean, I've got an, a case I want to do of a guy with your name. Uh, and then I put it off and put it off. Um, but this is a different Sean Flynn, no connection to Sean Flynn who I've spoken to, uh, but a weird coincidence nonetheless. But this case, it scratches every itch for me there is. It starts in Australia with the birth of Errol Flynn. It then goes to old Hollywood where he was one of the most successful actors of his time. It covers journalism, um, both with Errol Flynn in the Spanish Civil War, as well as Sean Flynn in Cambodia and Vietnam. Um, And I studied journalism at university, so that's an interest point for me. It covers Cambodia, that's where it takes place, the main events in this, which is a country I didn't expect to fall in love with when I went on a trip there. But then I went home, packed up my stuff and it returned like 10 days later, um, about a decade ago, because I was so in love with it. And I just absorbed everything about its history. And I did um, a few Khmer les- lessons, which is their language Khmer, and it's it's very difficult. <laughs> um, and I 
yeah, I don't have any regrets about my experience there really. But I just put it off for so long because I didn't really want to tap into my memories because they kind of lead on to other bittersweet memories for me. Um, and it made me feel a little bit sad. It also felt really overwhelming to get back into uh, relearning about Cambodia, things that I'd forgotten. And it felt overwhelming because then I had to research multiple people, Errol Flynn, Sean Flynn, Dana Stone, Cambodia. So, but now's the time. So it finally, Patron Hope, when you become a patron, you get to choose a location for an upcoming episode. And this is your weekly reminder that from May 31st, only $5 and over a month pledges get that option up until then. Everyone does. Um, I've said that on the last two weeks and I'll continue to say it up until May 31st. So hope it's up to her choice. And she requested Cambodia. And when she did, um, I knew it was time to do this episode. Hope is from Kentucky. I always talk about who the patron is, who's requested it and where they're from. And I think it's really interesting, like her history, Sean Flynn. I just think it all kind of ties in together. So she's currently taking a TEFL or TEFL courses to teach English overseas. Um, well, at least a few months ago she was. And I'm just going to read you quickly her introduction to kind of when she wrote to me on Patreon. Quote, hi, Felicity, I found your podcast by accident and I'm so glad I did. I was looking for information about Lao. And I found the Ryan Tchaikovsky episode and I've been binging ever since. I live in central Kentucky near Louisville. I'm taking TEFL classes to teach English overseas. I'd like to teach English in the Czech Republic, Vietnam and Cambodia, just to name a few. My dad is a retired army and he visited Southeast Asia looking for MIA POW remains from MIA slash POW remains from the Vietnam War. And he loved meeting the locals in the big cities and the remote villages. Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia were his favourites. They won't allow, they wouldn't allow um, him to search in Laos at the time. So I grew up hearing about those places and I've always wanted to visit all of them, unquote. So I love that that was uh, your dad's job. What a like fascinating what a fascinating job and he's spot on. All of those places are so distinct and unique and everyone has to experience them. So her choice was Cambodia. And with that information given to me, I knew that this was the time to do Sean Flynn's episode. How the reason that I'm doing part one about Errol Flynn may confuse you, <clears throat> but I think it's very important to understand a little bit about Sean is to know who his dad was. Normally, I don't have enough information to do a whole episode, um, a part one on who someone's parents were. But in this case, Errol Flynn was such a public figure. He's been dead for a very long time. Um, and I honestly think that quite a lot of his genetics and his life choices um, and what Sean saw from his father really played into who Sean became. Luckily for Sean, a lot of his father's, um, I guess, sins didn't appear to rub off onto Sean. Um, he just seemed like a really good guy. And I think how he grew up is really important to understand how he ended up where he did on a lonely road in war-torn Cambodia in 1970. 
So this will be covered in three parts. Now, there is obviously another victim in this episode and we have less information on him, Dana Stone, than on Sean Flynn. Because whenever you read about Sean Flynn, he is always named as son of Errol Flynn went missing. But Errol Flynn had been dead for quite a number of years when his son went missing. He had died when Sean was 18. But Dana Stone was also an American photojournalist doing really important work at the time when journalists and photojournalists did important work. Um, And he also vanished with his colleague Sean Flynn in Cambodia. Sean was on a... um, assignment for Time magazine at the time and he was quite a revered photojournalist and he'd really built his way up from just being the son of a often troubled man um, to being quite quite respected and quite esteemed. Um, but Dana's off, often not discussed as much as Sean despite also being an accomplished photojournalist in his own right and that's because his dad was not Errol Flynn so you can see why I this has been like researching four or five topics now there is a book on Sean and Errol Flynn that I tried for months and months to get that's why it's taken me such a long time even this year to do this case it's called Inherited Risk and I love that title because it really exemplifies what Errol Flynn passed on to his son, which was a love of risk. Um, but unfortunately, it appears to be out of print. And I think that because the only copy that I could find online was $200. And I cannot afford to spend that on a book. I'm sorry, guys. I also was not going to buy Errol Flynn's autobiography for part one. It is quite notorious and it's called My Wicked Wicked Ways, but I do have a few excerpts from both to read to you throughout this. After doing all the research for this, I decided to watch this really random, trashy documentary narrated by Christopher Lee, um, who's no longer with us, <laughs> about Errol Flynn this morning and it, it was just... It was terrible. It's called Tasmanian Devil because that was Errol Flynn's nickname because he was actually Australian um, and he was a devil and he was from Tasmania. Uh, it was very trashy, but it's well worth watching. It is on YouTube um, to it, just purely if you're interested in old Hollywood and for visuals of what I'm talking about um, and for a few clips of Errol Flynn speaking and things like that because honestly the clips aren't long enough for me to play that I could find. Um, yeah, so I don't know how else to put that. But very, very trashy and, yes, I know, um, Errol Flynn is a very suspect person. Um, I haven't left that out before someone gets all upset and impatient. Um, I actually walked away from this. He was never one of my favourite old Hollywood actors, um, but I obviously knew who he was and about his life. And um, <laughs> I walked away just kind of so... Uh, over this guy. I just wanted to get over part one of this. <laughs> he was just an egomaniac, probably exhausting to be around, an insufferable jerk. That's kind of what I walked away with. But albeit his life is very interesting and he obviously, you know, played some sort of role in the creation of his son, Sean, um, and what Sean would go on to be. So let's kick this off. Let's talk about... Errol Flynn. 
Errol Flynn is often referred to as an Australian-American actor, but he was an American other than being a naturalised citizen later on. He was born in Australia and I really don't get the feeling that he was particularly proud to be Australian or, or felt very strong ties to here, which is totally fine and something that over the course of my life I've understood as well. But he is a household name for many film lovers across the world, even almost seven decades after his death. Arguably, in retrospect, which we will touch on, many reasons that people know him these days are not good. But he was a huge movie star. He is the father of one of our victims and I think his own story is important for this overall story. And I keep coming back to the title of that book uh, that is now out of print, Inherited Risk, and how I think that really just exemplifies um the tie between this father and son. Errol Flynn was a true movie star in the truest sense of the world word. <laughs> On the Anthony Fox episode, I talked about um, why I love old Hollywood and, and kind of what it's meant for me over the course of my life um, and how much I I was gravitated to that more than modern films since the time I was a little girl. Um, my grandfather loved, you know, old old musicals and old movies um, and so did my mum and my dad. Um, so I grew up watching them and I always kind of felt that my body type was more like the women back then and I felt like I could more relate to them and um, I just loved the idea of the movie star, which it just doesn't exist anymore. You can say Tom Cruise maybe one, you know, maybe Johnny Depp's one having, you know, kind of refreshed my memory of Johnny Depp recently for the Anthony Fox case. And again, um, just losing hours out of every day watching this ongoing trial at the moment. Um, but back in the day, the 30s, 40s and 50s, these people were gods. Um, and the reason that Errol Flynn was always kind of thrown up and bandied about the name in my family was because my grandfather looked exactly like Errol Flynn. And I, people say, oh, people look like people. My gramps looked exactly like him um, in his heyday. My gramps wasn't a bloated alcoholic at the end, so he didn't have that going on. Um, he also lived a lot longer than Errol Flynn did in the end. But uh, basically people would see old pictures of my gramps and every single person would say, oh, my God, Errol Flynn. It was truly uncanny um and I'll try to put up a couple of pictures in Patreon um for you guys but my gramps didn't make it out of Melbourne um ever he worked as a mechanic and kind of just existed and built a family uh, but he was a good father and a good husband and a good grandfather and I don't think you can say the same about Errol Flynn I think that's where the the similarities end um but Errol Flynn was uh he was like gorgeous. He was he he was everything that you ex- would expect a leading man back then to be. He was suave. He was masculine. He built up this reputation as being a leading man and getting all the women. And when they yelled "cut," that's what his life was like as well. Um, he really hit Hollywood from the sunny shores of Tasmania. <laughs> 
Australia um, at just the right time. And he really paved the way for Australians to make it big in Hollywood. Now, if you get annoyed that Australians, I know a lot of actors I've heard like get annoyed that Australians take their roles, American actors and things like that. If that annoys you, blame Errol Flynn because he was the first one literally off the boat um, who made it big in Hollywood. But back then, the Australian thing didn't really play a role. And the funny thing is, back in the day, <clears throat> Australians didn't sound like they do now. They kind of all had that similar transatlantic way of speaking that a lot of Brits had and Cary Grant had. And it was kind of that old school way of talking like that. And... Um, you really can't say that Errol Flynn sounded, you know, like Chris Hemsworth or Hugh Jackman or something like that um, because he just didn't because people spoke differently back then. You can hear it in his voice but, you know, um, I do think he tried to get that out and I know a lot of actors try to do that um, so I think he probably worked on that as well. Um, but back in the day, it was probably a novelty for people in Hollywood because he just, they'd never had an Australian before. He was the first and arguably still one of the biggest Australians, Australian exports ever, um, except for maybe Kylie Minogue. <laughs> so I can't possibly document his entire life, but I can hit the main points. And I will say early on that there are going to be some references to sex, drugs and rock and roll in part one. Um, and maybe some, maybe some sexual assault and things like that on top of it. So if you've got kids around, maybe leave this one. Um, Errol Flynn had devastatingly good looks, which his son, Sean would inherit almost identical I've looked at so many pictures of both of them over the last few weeks, um, but I've looked at so many pictures of both of them over the last 20 years and, yeah, it's it's uncanny. Um, so the picture that I've put up, if you're watching on Spotify, is Sean when he was a young boy with Errol, his dad, but by this stage Errol was getting older um, and his choices had started to catch up and show in his face. Errol Flynn had swagger and women fell at his feet. Um, and he was so good at seducing women around him, married, them married or not, him married or not, whatever, that the term in like Flynn, if you've ever heard that, was actually coined after Errol Flynn. And when he wrote his autobiography, which is called My Wicked Wicked Ways, which says a whole lot already, um, he wanted to call it In Like Me, which is both naughty and horrific when you think about it. Now, he was also a major risk taker physically, metaphorically. Um, and as I said, the primary book on him and Sean's respective lives is called Inherited Risk, which I could only get excerpts of because I'm not paying $200 uh, for a book. But as I've said a million times, that book title is awesome. Errol's life was for the most part blessed with good luck, good genes and good fortune. And he seemed to fall into things with despite, to me at least, barely putting any um, time or effort into it. He never did an acting course. Um, he never did any kind of lessons. He he just kind of fell into things and I think he coasted through on his good looks. Sean, you could say he did that, but honestly, 
I don't think he did. I think he knew that he had this kind of curse of being Errol Flynn's son and really good looking. And you can go and look up pictures of them now if you want to. Um, but I don't think that was enough for him. I, I think he wanted to get by on his, his intellect. Errol Flynn died um, at just 50 years old after decades of substance abuse. And Sean Flynn was his only son and his eldest child of four. He was a clean-cut young man out to improve the world um, and he had all of that good fortune that was laid in his path cut short um, at just 28 years old where he would disappear in the jungles of Cambodia and he would never be seen again. Hadley Hall Mears wrote for Vanity Fair in his article, which is brilliant. It's called Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know the Mythical Life of Errol Flynn. This was written just last year in 2020, and I think it's a good introduction to talking about Errol. <laughs> Quote, from his early days biting off sheep testicles on an Australian farm to his reign as an international superstar, Flynn recounts his amoral adventures in deceptively eloquent prose that blunts his often sordid stories. Whether he was learning to drink odourless vodka on set from Anne Sheridan, smoking weed with Diego Rivera, wooing Princess Irene of Romania, or using cocaine on the tip of his penis as an aphrodisiac, Flynn was out for himself with little care for the wreckage he left along the way. I am dangerous to be with because, since I live dangerously, others are subject to the danger that I expose myself to, he writes. They, more likely than I, will get hurt. Errol Flynn's life began on June 20th, 1909, on the island state of Tasmania, Australia, which is where we have a patron, Elise, who I did an episode for recently. And when I looked up where Elise lives, because I, I she's emailed me and it's on her, the footer of her email, it literally said five minutes from where um, Errol Flynn was born. In 1909, nowhere was further, figuratively or literally, from the bright lights of Hollywood as it grew with silent film than the state of Tassie, as we call Tasmania. Born Errol Leslie Thompson Flynn in the suburb of Battery Point in Tasmania's capital city of Hobart, Errol was born into what seemed to be a very everyday Australian suburb dotted by typical weatherboard homes, many of which still stand today. Um, even today, the population of Hobart, which is one of the oldest cities in Australia, I believe it's the second oldest city, is not even a quarter of a million. Um, and Battery Point, the current population of that neighbourhood is around 2,000 people. I tried to look up and it was quite hard to um, some population statistics of Hobart at the time because I figured it would have just been a tiny, tiny city. Um, and it had less than half what it has now. Um, and the island is about the size of the Island of Ireland, Ireland being I-R-E-L-A-N-D. Um, but he was born into quite a well-off family. His father, Theodore Thompson Flynn, who would ultimately outlive his son as um, 
by a number of years, uh, was a professor at the University of Tasmania, which still exists today. He was 26 when Errol was born and according to most sources, he was a biologist but he specialised in marine biology and he worked at both in Australia and abroad, namely the UK and Ireland and both he and Errol Flynn's mum were both, because a lot of people were at this stage, a hundred and, you know, 120, 130 years ago when they were coming over like when they were growing up, these people, their parents were often, you know, had come over from the UK or Ireland. He would ultimately actually end up naming a plant species that he found after his son. He called it Gabonsia eroli. Errol loved his dad, according to this documentary I watched, um, Tasmanian Devil. His dad was away a lot for work and he would miss him and really, according to most sources, he hated his mum and she would create this kind of suspicion of women and their agendas that he would harbour for the rest of his life and I think that's ultimately why he kind of treated women like he did both consensual relationships and seemingly non-consensual ones. He would kind of just use them and throw them away maybe built into the theory that they would do it to him so he would do it first. But back then, you know, men didn't get into their feelings so we would never really know um, other than things that he said in his autobiography, which you have to call into question almost everything he said about his life because he was such a gas bag, um, a windbag, yeah, a a blowhard, um, seemingly made up a lot of stuff about his life. But he would just end up perpetuating a vicious cycle where he, you know, this early days with his mum because she was quite a tough woman. This documentary made out like she regularly cheated on his dad. It threw in a random sex scene from a movie about Errol Flynn's life, but it didn't say what the movie was. So I tried to find it. It was some weird low budget Australian movie from decades ago. And then it was just this woman in bed with another guy and the kid walks in and she goes, Errol. And that was the end of that. It was all very confusing. His mother was called Lily Mary Young. Ultimately, his first wife, who he would also say was the bane of his existence, was also called Lily. So I don't know if that's, you know, if he manifested that. Uh, But he would ultimately call his first wife Tiger Lily, and that wasn't a compliment. Um, So I wonder if he called his mum that behind his back too. But... His parents got married in the January of the year Errol was born. So if you can do the math, that was clearly a shotgun wedding in 1909. But for whatever reason, right after marrying Theodore in Sydney in January 1909, she changed her first name to Morel from Lily, which is super weird, but I'm going to call him Morel for the rest of this to avoid confusion um, because Lily is actually the name of... Errol Flynn's first wife, who played a pretty key role in his life. But the family would end up moving down to Tasmania and Morel would see this as like the end of her life um, and that she was destined for better stuff than living on an island and being a wife and things like that. Um, But the family, what they did have in common was that they were all very interested in the sea as a result of Theodore's job as a marine biologist and just a general love for the sea and living on an island surrounded by ocean. 
And Errol would ultimately inherit a lifelong love of boats and the ocean. And later on, when he was loaded and famous, you know, he would regularly escape to his yacht, which was kind of one of his most treasured possessions. Errol grew up with a love for wildlife um, and the family regularly had them in the yard as pets because back then people had more land and, you know, he could actually buy a house back then. So he loved kangaroos and things like that. And obviously Tasmania is famous for the Tasmanian devil, which is where he would get his his nickname and when we get into it, it's easy to see why, other than gonorrhea or whatever um, STD or is that koalas that they're susceptible to? I thought that Tasmanian devils also got syphilis or something. Anyway, I just ruined my joke. Errol was sent to a number of esteemed schools throughout his years and he was expelled from every single one. He was a troublemaker. Seems like he had a massive ego. He was super flirtatious with everyone at a time when that was not on. He was really theatrical and a classmate referred to him in the Vanity Fair article as naughty. He seemed to be beyond his years with how he spoke and his command of, you know, the English language. And his mother regularly called him a devil. Um, that was her name for him, but it wasn't like a, a term of endearment. It was like he was a demon. Um, and she regularly hit him for his many offences. Traditional schooling was not for Errol and his family would ultimately ship him off to extended family in London and then he would be sent to a London boarding school from the ages of 14 to 16. His grandparents were all British. He was expelled from that boarding school. They couldn't handle him and then he was returned to Australia, which was back then a very long boat trip for most people, I think a couple of months. And he finished his schooling in Sydney at a quite posh grammar school. He was then expelled from that school for theft. And one of his regular offences I found kind of looking into his past was theft. Errol regularly talked shit. There's no other way to put it. One of his big stories was that his family descended from the kind of famous story of the mutiny on the bounty which became quite a famous book and movie and this particular expulsion from this posh grammar school in Sydney he said he got expelled because he was caught having sex with the school's laundress so the woman who does the laundry at the school um, but actually the reality was he had stolen at the school it was theft he would go on to steal after being forced to take a job that he thought he was better than at a shipping company in Sydney and he really saw Australia as a prison island where he couldn't get by and the jobs weren't enough for him and he could barely kind of scratch by a living. So ultimately he would get together the few dollars that it probably cost when he was 18, you know, in, the, in 1927. He bought a schooner um, and he set sail for Papua New Guinea, which we haven't been to on the podcast, but it kind of sits above Australia. Um, and at one point it was actually considered part of Australia. It's really interesting. Um, while he was there, it depends on who you believe, like 
Errol's stories may not be what really happened. Um, he said that he panned for gold. He ran a coconut plantation. Um, but really the reality seems to be that he just went town to town scamming people and making money off people. Um, and that is verified. He would do this to support himself on and off for five years. He never wanted to return to Australia, um, but ultimately he would be forced to. According to the Vanity Fair article, quote, by his own admission, Flynn witnessed the horrors of colonialism and actively participated in them. He became a recruiter marching into the jungle of New Guinea to persuade Indigenous men to work as indentured labourers. At night, he attempted to educate himself, reading the classics by the light of a hurricane lamp while lizards and bugs swarmed around the single light. I took a look at where I was, he writes, roaming from spot to spot, looking for gold, bumping and bumbling about like a blind bumblebee, hoping for a chance, plunging at a jungle with bare hands. According to Flynn, this reckless life came to a head when he and a group of labourers were ambushed in the jungle. His assistant, a young boy called Ateliwa, was killed. I jumped behind a tree with my revolver in hand. I fired as fast as I could and I hit one of the raiders right in the neck, he writes, unquote. So the Vanity Fair article is recapping and quoting from his autobiography, My Wicked Wicked Ways. Now, sadly, there is no evidence um, that he was in this kind of... <laughs> this kind of um, ambush in the jungle and the assistant was killed and all of that. He said in his autobiography that he was charged with murder during this. Um, we don't have any evidence. He said he went on trial and they let him go for some reason. Regardless, what we do know is that he ultimately returned to Australia with gonorrhea and returned to trying to find... Um, whatever job he could to survive. And he'd, once he'd left for New Guinea, he never wanted to return to Australia again and he was forced to. But when he would leave for Hollywood, he would actually never return to Australia. He never once came back. At 22, Errol got engaged for the first time. This engagement would fail, but maybe that was meant to be for that woman. His motto in life was, quote, I like my whiskey old and my women young. Unquote. Errol ultimately fell into acting in 1933 by chance when in Australia he would star in a film called The Wake of the Bounty, which was a film about the mutiny on the bounty, which for years Errol had spun the tale that his family was featured in that original story. <laughs> so weird, funny little like manifesting things where if you tell a lie enough, you somehow manifest a variation of that lie. There's a lot of little things throughout um, him and Sean's stories which kind of converge. It's very strange. The movie wasn't a success. Actually, according to the Tasmanian Devil documentary, it was actually, I think, the first movie made in Australia. Um, but I think they kind of meant in colour. But it gave Errol a credit on his CV, which was enough for him to decide to pursue acting as a career. That was all he needed. Full of confidence, he left for England initially. <clears throat> now, by this stage, Errol had developed 
from what I think is quite a kind of nondescript kind of pudgy teenager, but it seems from women that they interviewed on the Tasmanian devil documentary that everyone was in love with him. Um, he turned into the face that would be known for generations, even till today. Six foot two, tall, slim, dark haired with a little moustache, um, a brilliant smile and a really captivating gaze. Basically, he, when he was in Sydney to get money together for his trip to England and to get on that boat, he became involved with a woman that he sucked in. She was quite well off. Um, and within a month, he'd fleeced her of gems and jewellery, which he then pawned. He was really proud of stories like this, which is really sad. Um, and that was enough for him to head off. But on the way, um, he has lots of different stories about how he... he uh, he kind of had a cockfighting ring in the Philippines and he went to Thailand and in somewhere in this part of the world, the Philippines, Thailand, he met this Austrian um, guy called Herman who will come into play later and they would travel together for a fair bit and this guy's very mysterious and he comes in and out of Errol Flynn's life and He's very shady um, and this guy would make a whole other episode on his own, but I will get back into him later. But all of these stories are courtesy of Errol's own autobiography, My Wicked Wicked Ways. And there's no way of knowing what's true and what's false because we're talking about things that happened in 1930. It's hard enough getting clips of his movies from back then. He ultimately arrived in England and found work as a stage actor and just kind of fell into that. But ultimately, a twist of fate would have him discovered by pretty much the biggest movie studio at the time from Hollywood, Warner Brothers. He was performing at the Stratford-upon-Avon Festival, which is where William Shakespeare was from. I've been there. It's a beautiful town that's all set up as kind of an ode to Shakespeare. It's in Warwickshire. And he was working for the Royal Shakespeare Company because Errol Flynn just fell into these things. There was no... Um, you know, grafting to get there or anything like that. Um, and for some reason, they were at this Stratford-upon-Avon festival, saw him and was like, that guy needs to come to Hollywood because they all talked that that. Now, as I explained on the Anthony Fox episode a little bit, just to give you an idea of how things were back then, when you were an actor, you were tied to a specific studio. You signed a contract with them per week and... Um, a lot of the contracts were huge for the time, like even $300 a week back then was, you know, massive. And I think that's what Judy Garland started on. Some of them were on 2000 a week. I think at one point Fatty Arbuckle was crazy money back in the day when they were transitioning from silent films into talkies, as they put it, where people spoke. And, and Errol Flynn hit right at that time. It was the perfect time. Errol was all about those contacts and who he could use to kind of progress his career. So despite being a lad not destined to be chained to one woman, on the ship from London to Hollywood, he met a actress called Lily Demeter. Now, Lily Demeter is not a household name if you're into old Hollywood. She was a French-born actress who had made quite a number of films um, by this point. I think she was around six years older than Errol. Um, 
she's beautiful. She's stunning. Um, if you look up pictures of her, you kind of, she's like otherworldly. He should have been happy with her, but I don't know if it's because she had <laughs> his mum's name. It, maybe it was off to a bad, a bad start, but she already had contacts in Hollywood. So Errol kind of hitched his wagon to Lily Demeter, who would ultimately be Sean Flynn's mum. She introduced Errol to all the right people once they got to Hollywood and ultimately Warner Brothers would sign him on a contract which would only grow until he would ultimately become the biggest paid actor at the time um, in Hollywood. He was even bigger than Humphrey Bogart, which is huge. But Warner Brothers were not used to Australians being over there. They they didn't really know how to market an Australian at this point in time because uh, it was kind of a bit of an oddity. So they marketed him as an Irish actor. So he kind of ended up affecting that strange Cary Grant, old school way of talking, which they often call a transatlantic accent. And you can't, you can't really tell if they're British or American, they're kind of old school. There's no real point me playing you any clips of him speaking, um, because he just sounds like any other actor, you know, he, he doesn't sound like Hugh Jackman or something. So by 1935, just a few short years after apparently escaping the death penalty in Papua New Guinea, Errol Flynn was a Hollywood star. He carved out a niche in Hollywood that was only just transitioning, as I said, into talkies and where everything was new, nothing was old hat or predictable or plots hadn't been done before. Everything was a new idea. We were like 50 years away from horror movies at this point that hadn't even popped into someone's head um this was all men leading men and leading ladies the men with the sex symbols they all looked very similar um there was generally a very predictable storyline and because films weren't as long as they are now people could smash out like you know 100 films in a year <laughs> Um, so he was one of the original action stars they decided to market him as. He is known as a leading man but a swashbuckler, I hate that word, because he often played these kind of heroic Robin Hood types, um, as well as being a seducer of women and a sex symbol. Old Hollywood fans will think of Errol Flynn if you think of another actor or actress that you think of them in regards to they think of Olivia de Havilland who I absolutely loved she died in 2020 at the age of 103 in Paris um, even though she was an American actress R.I.P. Olivia de Havilland she was incredible she was the sister from memory of Joan Fontaine um, and they had a massive ongoing feud for years. It was all very old Hollywood. Olivia de Havilland is most known for playing the kind of sad, pathetic character of Melanie in Gone with the Wind, who Scarlett O'Hara is her best friend in Scarlett, does the dirty on her um, with Ashley. Um, and she was a massive star, Olivia de Havilland. She, I, it's amazing she made it to 103 because... Even in 2020 when she died, I, I was thinking she knew people that died 70 years ago that she went out with. It's it's crazy to think about it like that. But Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland were known as 
you know, the Seth Rogen, James Franco of their generation. No, I'm joking. I can't think of a equivalent, you know, when a male and a female are put together and on screen they're a partnership um, regularly in films and things like that. But off screen, they're just friends. So Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland made eight films together over six years and Warner Brothers would continuously cash in on this popularity of the two of them together. Um, Their films included Captain Blood in 1935, The Charge of the Light Brigade in 1936, and arguably Errol Flynn's most famous movie that he ever made, The Adventures of Robin Hood in 1938. And you can still see a lot of clips of that today um, online. I'll play you a little bit now just to get an idea of him talking. But if you watch clips of it, it's actually really impressive for 1938 um, because the movie had just started using the Technicolor process. Um, this was around the time The Wizard of Oz also was, I think, the first one to use it. But they actually say that The Adventures of Robin Hood, they say in the Vanity Fair piece, was the first large-budget colour film using the three-strip Technicolor process. Technicolor was really technical at the time and it's really interesting. Um, but I'll play you a little clip and then we'll talk about Errol hitting his career peak and the rapid decline thereafter. And what do you propose to do? I'll organize revolt. Exact a death for a death. And I'll never rest until every Saxon in the Shire can stand up, free men, and strike a blow for Richard and England. Have you finished? I'm only just beginning. From this night on, I use every means in my power to fight you. So with that, at age 28... Errol Flynn hit his career peak and I found this quite kind of poetic because his son decades later would meet his end um, or presumed end at the age of 28 um, but in a place that could not be further from Hollywood. Errol would remain in Warner Brothers' top five actors in terms of what they were earning uh, for years after this. Um, He rivaled the likes, as I said, of Humphrey Bogart. And they don't name the other ones, but I presume it was like Carrie... um, I presume it was Clark Gable um, and people like that because this is the 30s and um, it's a bit before, you know, the time of Marilyn Monroe and the bombshell and things like that. The Tasmanian Devil, as he would call, had done what no other Aussie had deemed to do before. Um, But nothing was ever really enough for Errol. Um, He had itchy feet, but it also seemed like he wasn't just looking for adventure to me. It seemed that he just nothing was ever enough. Nothing fed his ego enough. Um, And in the documentary Tasmanian Devil, I keep going to say Tasmanian Tiger, which is like a myth, I'm pretty sure, that it's kind of like our Bigfoot. Um, he thrived on conflict, really, and war really suited him. So when Spain went into a civil war in 1936, he decided that he was going to be a writer and to go there, which is a really weird thing to me. And in the documentary, they were talking about how he was the first, you know, um, actor in Hollywood or the only one to go to Spain. And that may be true of actors, but um, I really love George Orwell um, and Hemingway. 
And Orwell wrote Voyage to Catalonia and actually went fought in the Spanish Civil War. So people with actual, you know, quite well-known writers and things also went. Uh, But it seems to me that Errol Flynn went because he was bored. I really couldn't get a read on why. But one of the reasons they gave was because by this stage, the sheen had really worn off with Lily. and, And to me, it really seems that he had used her for what he needed to use her for. And I wasn't as hard on Errol Flynn a lot of facets of his life as I was researching this. But as I'm kind of going through it now, I'm feeling a lot differently about a lot more facets of his life and reading them differently um, and kind of processing them differently. Um, he saw Lily as like the thorn in his side and they fought all the time through things at each other and things like that. So in 1937, he went to Spain and in one of the letters that he wrote or articles that would be published back at home, because a few were, he wrote that he wanted to, quote-unquote, get a look at the Spanish Civil War, which I thought was just a random kind of whatever. So Errol had this friend, which I touched on earlier, who he travelled around Southeast Asia with before he went to England to become an actor. This guy's name is Herman Urban, or was. Uh, They seem to have met in Papua New Guinea around the time that Errol was doing whatever he was doing, scamming people and, you know, gold mining, depends on what you believe. Um, and that's really kind of shifty how they knew each other. But they travelled together on and off in the early days. From my estimation, Herman Urban was about 12 years older than Errol Flynn was. Really weird dude, looks like a really weird dude. Um, but... Basically, he pitched to Errol Flynn that they should go to Spain. Now, there's a big article that you can find online about it that goes into the whole thing. Um, And I didn't think it was particularly, you know, interesting, but I wanted to know why he went. So he went as a writer, which is where I started to think it was really interesting because another way that he converges later on with his son, Sean, in the sense that they were both drawn to war zones. And I wonder if that was a genetic thing or whether it's just a coincidence. They were drawn to risk, as they put it. Apparently, he had always liked writing, as someone puts it on the Tasmanian Devil doco. They said he was a frustrated war correspondent. But the thing is, if you're a writer, you you write to write. It's like Hemingway always said, it, you know, it bleeds from you. Write drunk, edits over. Um, or, or, well, you do it even if there's nothing in it for you. And it just seems like you'd never heard of Errol Flynn wanting to be a writer before and after this you never do either. So to me he's just a fickle kind of person. Um, But ultimately anyway, they went to Spain. They had some weird shifty dealings with the Spanish government. So it seems like they were driven around in like a government car which automatically removes the objectivity point of why you're going to report and write objectively on what's going on during the Spanish Civil War pre-World War II. Um, But basically Errol was the writer and Herman was the official photographer of this bizarre trip. Now, ultimately, once they got back, which they were gone a whole week, (laughs) Herman would sell 
the portraits of Spanish soldiers that he took during the time that they were there. They're very clear pictures of a lot of them. They're quite interesting. They're on the Tasmanian Devil documentary. He would sell these portraits to the Nazis. He would actually fly to Berlin to meet with head Nazis, sold the portraits that he took to the Nazis, who then persecuted a lot of the men that were in the portraits because they had clear pictures of them. Now, Errol apparently did not know this was Herman's plan, despite a book, a whole book being written about Errol Flynn, um, another one that I haven't mentioned and haven't used as a source, that basically said that he knew this was the plan and that he himself was anti-Semitic. However, friends say that this is not the case. Um, and I actually believe that, that, that Errol Flynn was friends with really anyone, um, anyone that could give him a leg up on where he wanted to be. Um, Herman Urban was actually, he was Austrian. He was actually an Austrian Jew, but he was also an active Nazi party member, a very keen one. And when you look at pictures of him, he looks exactly like Adolf Hitler, almost like he'd modelled himself on it. But it's, that's a weird side story that I just thought was interesting. You know, in the story, as we get into Sean Flynn being a legitimate photojournalist and Dana Stone, it kind of converges with what the hell was Errol Flynn doing and why was he going to a war zone? Um, I mean, we're seeing it now with celebrities and, and Ukraine and um, you see it anytime. Uh, I think it's Thomas Sowell, like uh, I can't think of the exact quote, but basically in every conflict there's always an opportunity. Um, and I think that's what Errol Flynn saw it as. Um going there and kind of making money off people suffering. Uh, I don't know, and that's just the way I see it with, with things that have gone on and continue to go on. Um, but ultimately that trip lasted a week and he was back in Hollywood, um, seemingly, according to him, suffering with Lily while also betting like every other female star that he could. So they've relationship was pretty much done but on May 31st 1941 Sean Flynn was born they were actually going through divorce proceedings Lily and Errol when Sean was born and Sean would be really tragically Lily's only child ever her beloved son and someone that when he would go missing in 1970, she would spend all of her money and the rest of her life looking for, which is one of the true tragedies of this whole story. Um, it would also be Errol Flynn, his eldest child of four, uh, but his only son. In 1942, Errol Flynn became a US citizen um, and when the US became involved in World War II, he very publicly tried to enlist in the army and they don't really go into why but just my understanding of this is that a lot of actors at the time did but because they were legitimate pilots or soldiers so I think it's Jimmy Stewart he was actually one of like the highest ranked pilots in the US Air Force and he never talked about it he was like he was an amazing man who seems to have come off um, unscathed through retrospective history. But I think Errol Flynn was doing things to try to please the public 
and get them back on board because his career really started to wane and he had no one to blame but himself, his own life choices, his own substance abuse and other things that would continue to happen in his life very soon. So other stars like Jimmy Stewart had done it, um, but Flynn did the whole medical process and there's pictures of him going through it and he failed the medical, the physical dismally. He had a bunch of different problems and they were legitimate and he was really embarrassed by it because a lot of the things I don't think he even knew he had um, and he would be mocked by reporters and critics who called him a draft dodger um, and he was really embarrassed by it, as was Warner Brothers, because they didn't want to admit that this tall, strapping man who they promoted as their biggest star and this action movie superstar actually had malaria that he'd had, I think, three times, <coughs> which he'd had from his time in Papua New Guinea, pre-malaria tablets and things like that, where you could kind of um, avoid those kinds of things. It was very common. He had a heart murmur, which was a congenital defect. Um, he had tuberculosis, which you can have a form of it. I think it's called walking tuberculosis, where you've just got it chronically, which was really common at the time as well. And he had a ton of different venereal diseases, you know, gonorrhea, syphilis, things like that. So, this was all put out there in the public um, and he kind of lost a lot of his charm as a result of it and they disqualified him from being a potential to join the army, to go to World War II and he really obviously felt embarrassed as well because it made him not look masculine at all. So he and Lily ultimately divorced in 1942 after seven years of marriage as I said, they were actually divorcing while Lily was pregnant with Sean. Um, the split was not friendly at all. It went on for years. Basically, Errol Flynn believed that Lily was out to destroy his life and had been for years, that she was out to take everything from him and that she'd ruined his whole life. Um, and I think she really just wanted him to have something to do with his son and to kind of help her out a bit considering he was... Um, the highest paid actor in Hollywood at the time. <laughs> so most actresses of the time of Errol's, the peak of his career had a story of him either sleeping with them or trying to sleep with them. Most of them relented. Um, I can't think of the names. Um, they were kind of, they're not massive they're not massive actresses, a lot of them. But a lot of people over the years thought that maybe Olivia de Havilland, despite Errol being married and her being married, um, that they had something going on. But only 10 years ago when Olivia de Havilland was <laughs> like 95 years old being asked about her sex life in the 1930s, can you imagine? Um, she was asked about it in an interview and she was quite candid. And she said that, she felt that they were in love, but they never consummated it due to his marriage to Lily. And I actually believe that because Olivia de Havilland, I don't know if it's just me, but I've always kind of held her as a bit of an angel. 
one of the women that actually rebuffed him, if anyone's a fan of um, Bette Davis, who was amazing, or Betty Davis, as some people say, uh, she was famous for her ongoing feud, which they made into a, a TV show a few years ago with Joan Crawford. She was incredible. Um, she used to just reapply her makeup every day and never take it off. So that's why she ended up with the look that she had. Um, but Bette Davis rebuffed him. He would try it on with everyone. Um, and when someone would rebuff him, he would also, he would always say that, um, basically that the woman was, you know, they wanted him and, um, they couldn't have him. Like he twisted it around kind of thing. But Bette was the only one who rattled Errol uh, to the point where one time he tried it on with her somewhere and she publicly humiliated him in front of everyone and he was like a little boy, you know, shaking um, after this interaction because Bette Davis was a pretty, pretty intense woman. Errol Flynn was a heavy... <clears throat> He was a heavy smoker, a, a serious drinker all day, every day, um, and a drug user for many years. And he very quickly started destroying his own career. Errol Flynn called alcohol in, I think, probably what's one of his most candid moments, quote, one of the slowest, though most certain forms of suicide, unquote. The rake put it well when they said in their article, quote, nothing delighted Flynn so much as vodka, brawling with hostile gossip columnists and screwing impressionable fans, unquote. And that brings us to 1942. Well, 1943. In 1943, Errol Flynn was charged with two counts of statutory rape. Both of the girls were 17 or they're often quoted as being 17, but in an interview with one of them, which is used in the Tasmanian Devil documentary, one of them at the conclusion of the trial that goes ahead says that she's not even 17. She feels like her life's been ruined. So kind of makes me think she was 16. Basically, these two girls, they were separate incidents. One, um, one Errol Flynn said that he'd had a consensual encounter with. This was a girl called Peggy Satterley. Um, and this apparently happened on his yacht, which he'd bought, which he would have for decades uh, and regularly kind of cruised around the Caribbean and things like that. Now, the other girl was a girl called Betty Hansen. She said um, that she'd been raped by him at a party on Mulholland Drive um, at his kind of notorious house that he had there, which he had like two-way mirrors and things like that, uh, if you believe people that were there and the actor David Niven and him would get up to some really crazy stuff. Um, but when asked about these incidents, Errol Flynn was quoted as saying to a reporter, quote, who approaches a prospective sweetheart asking her to whip out her birth certificate or driver's license or show a letter from her mother, unquote. So ultimately this trial would go ahead and I just want to explain what the rule was at the time. So the statutory rape law is a law that exists or existed at the time that it's any man at the time having sex with a minor under 18 whether consensual or not so it doesn't matter if it's consensual now one of the girls would say it was consensual and this would provide a problem 
somehow during the trial, which I don't fully understand because the law says it's either consensual or not, it doesn't matter. But basically in this Tasmanian Devil documentary, they discuss how at the trial, Errol Flynn's lawyer went hell for leather on the histories of these two girls, despite only them only being 17. Now, one of them, he decided to um, basically rip apart her history. She'd had a, an abortion. And obviously at the time, this was, you know, massive uh, to say out in public. So that instantly discredited her to the jury. Um, and the other girl, they said that she had been charged with a crime against nature in the past, but they didn't say what that was. So I looked up what a crime against nature was. And it is or was, um, quote, in English speaking states, identifying forms of sexual behavior not considered natural or decent um, and are legally punishable. So most of these, I presume it's sodomy and things like that. These laws don't exist anymore, but at the time they did. So they were able to discredit her as well um, because they just said they were both sluts and also, one of the girls quotes um, when she was asked on the stand about Errol Flynn taking her pants off, she said um, kind of something in the way of, um, you know, who's going to say no to Errol Flynn kind of thing. Um, but Errol Flynn did not let the fact that he was going to trial at City Hall in LA Daily stop him from picking up women along the way. At City Hall heading to trial daily, he was very taken with a young redhead woman who worked at City Hall um, at like a food kiosk or something like that. This woman was a teenager, which would become an ongoing thing. It seems that Lily, his first wife, was the only one who was older than him or around his age. Her name was Nora Eddington and she was a budding actress and socialite. Um, and not long after Errol's trial, he would get married to her when she turned 18. <clears throat> now, if you're wondering what happened with the trial, uh, very famously, Errol Flynn was acquitted because of basically the the tactics used by his defence against these two girls. Um, and he was pretty stoked about that. He went on to marry Nora and they would go on to have two daughters, Deirdre and Rory. Now, Rory's regularly interviewed on these documentaries and she, she talks about her dad, obviously. He was her dad and she looked up to him, but there's a lot of like kind of rose-coloured glasses stuff going on. Um and I guess you don't want to you don't want to admit certain things about him, but she kind of says he's a lad, and you know he was a bit naughty and things like that. But I think it goes a bit beyond that, you know, with Errol Flynn in retrospect. But according to Rory being interviewed on the Tasmanian Devil documentary, she said that when she was growing up, um, Sean's mum Lily would ship him out for three months at a time of the year to spend and to live with them and their family. So Nora. Errol, Deirdre and Rory. Um, and I do believe that because it, she, the rest of the time she would send him to boarding school. So I think Lily moved down to Florida and she just kind of gave up um, for quite a while. I think it took it out of her being married to Errol Flynn. About his trial, Errol Flynn said, quote, I might have been guilty as hell under the law that is, but in the world of day-to-day -day common sense, everybody knew that the girls had asked for it, whether or not I had my wicked ways with them. 
unquote. Yep. So Errol and Nora split in 1949. Um, This divorce was more friendly, it seemed like, and they stayed on better terms. Um, But around this time, I found a very interesting (laughs) um, article that said that Truman Capote, who I absolutely loved, he wrote one of my favourite books in Cold Blood, he said in 1949 that he had slept with Errol Flynn um, and he said about it, quote, I'm not going to put on a Capote voice, but if it hadn't been Errol Flynn, I wouldn't remember. We were both drunk and it took him the longest time to have an orgasm. I never did, unquote. Now that shade indicates to me that that, that is true Truman Capote shade. And I, I totally believe this happened. Um, so Errol Flynn only gave it a few months between a divorce and a new marriage. So at almost 40, in um, 1950, he married an actress called um, Patty Wymore and they had one daughter, Arnella. Now, they would remain married legally until Errol died just nine years later, but they hardly saw each other at the tail end of that nine years um, because Errol was living with a 15-year-old at that point. Sadly, Arnella would actually die young from substance abuse and inherited trait that she took from her father, seemingly, um, at quite a young age. Errol Flynn often declared, quote, women won't let me stay single and I won't let myself stay married, unquote. But Patty jumped on the Errol Flynn train too late and by the early 1950s, even Errol Flynn confessed to most people that he was a broke joke. Nobody wanted to hire him. He was box office poison He was bloated and kind of sweaty looking. And when you look at clips of him on different TV shows later on, it's almost like a different person. Um, He looked way older than 50. It's, It's really quite sad, but it's the damage that that kind of lifestyle brings on you. But I also believe that it's the damage those kinds of bad, bad karma brings on you as well. But he blamed everyone else for his diminishing career. He blamed Warner Brothers Studios. He blamed the fans. He blamed women in his life, men in his life. There was zero self-accountability. Unsurprisingly, at around this time, he was in talks to star in Stanley Kubrick's rendition of the story of Lolita, which I don't know if that one got made, but I know the Jeremy Irons one in like the late 90s got made. Um, but he wouldn't live long enough to star in that. Patty and Errol took their new daughter, Arnella, and they lived aboard his beloved yacht, Zaka, in the Mediterranean. Here, Errol would regularly entertain his old Hollywood friends, uh, royalty like Prince Rainier of Monaco, who was married to Grace Kelly, very famously. He, she died young in her 50s, but he only died probably 10, 15 years ago. Uh, but he was never happy. Nothing ever made him happy. Money, women, anything. He said in his autobiography, My Wicked Wicked Ways, quote, my dream of happiness is a quiet spot by the Jamaican seashore, looking out at the activity in the ocean, hearing the wind sob with the beauty and tragedy of everything. Unfortunately, an hour later, I might not be happy with that, unquote. And I think that's another candid quote from him where he understood why that he was the way he was. So the years of abuse and raging narcissism were not kind to Errol Flynn, as I said. Always the capitalist, though. 
Errol used the fact that he was bloated and kind of sad and pale-skinned, almost ashen at this point, to his advantage. And he started, he traded in his um, sex symbol status from decades before and kind of played like a rendition of himself where he would play drunks and things like that um, in different movies, which is really sad when you think about it. So Errol owned an estate in Jamaica for many years and in his final years he was essentially a hermit there. He was never alone though. He had a girlfriend in the last couple of years of his life, Beverly, who was 15 when he met her and at the time that he died at 59 she was 17 years old. His four children were either in boarding school or lived with their mothers abroad and by this point he didn't see them much, including Sean, who was 17, 18 at this point. It seems that from photos that you see of Errol Flynn and Sean, they're like photo ops, you know. Um, they're not genuine. This It's forced. It's It's really sad. Money was so tight by this point that Errol was attempting to lease his beloved yacht to a businessman in Canada um, and he really didn't want to have to do this but it was one of the only choices he had. Just side note, there's a couple of appearances that he made on this TV show that I was watching. It's in black and white. It's from um, the mid-50s and he's in his mid... He's... Oh, no, he's probably in his mid no, he was 50 when he died, so he's in his late 40s. He probably looks 70. It was that bad and that dramatic, the change. But the premise of this show, I can't believe I watched a whole episode of it. I can't even remember what it was called. But you get like a washed-up actor. I, I, like it's like Guess Who? And the people on the panel, it's a panel game show, they're kind of like nobodies from Hollywood at the time and they're all blindfolded and they have to ask this person questions. It's like 20 questions. And so you, the audience, can see who this person is, this famous person. And Errol Flynn's on an episode and they're like, it's just really sad and pathetic. Like they they can ask a yes, no question. And the woman on it who's really flirty and stuff and she's got like her um, blindfold on she's like are you married and everyone kind of laughs and and he he's like whoa but when he talks and gives his answers because he's able to say a couple of words as an answer to things he can barely get his words out he's just so he's so beyond help um, in terms of his addiction and things like that but it's like three questions in and one of the guys goes is it Errol Flynn it's like because it's just this drunk kind of slurring his words and they take their blindfolds off oh it's Errol Flynn so back to leasing the yacht this is Errol Flynn's final act his third act so he flew to Vancouver in Canada um, to finalise the deal and to lease this yacht because he was in such dire financial straits that he didn't have a choice. Um, and once that was all done, he was driven back to the airport in Vancouver to fly back to Los Angeles. So while they were in the car driving back to the Vancouver airport, Flynn started complaining of severe pain in his back and legs. So his driver took him to his friend's house who happened to be a doctor um, and he started to feel a little bit better once they gave him some painkillers. 
Um, they put him in one of the spare rooms to kind of rest for a little bit and 20 minutes later they checked on him and he was dead. Errol Flynn died on October 14th, 1959 at 50 years old. Both of his parents were still alive at the time. I think at this point they were living in England. Errol Flynn is buried at Forest Lawn Memorial Park, which is a really famous celebrity cemetery um, in Glendale, California, a place that he <laughs> he once remarked in an interview that it was one of the places that he hated the most on the planet, and that's where they ended up burying him. And I don't know if they did that kind of to spite him. I'm not really sure. Um, but he's in kind of like a mausoleum thing near Walt Disney, and unsurprisingly, he was interred with six bottles of his famous, his favourite whiskey. Errol Flynn's career spanned 27 years, at least 25 movies, countless stage plays, uh, three marriages and four children. And there's quite a few movies made about him, including one just a few years ago that has Kevin Klein playing Errol Flynn weirdly. Adjusted for inflation, when he died, he had a net worth of around $10 million, but that's just his net worth. He didn't really have it to hand. But in a Johnny Depp kind of way, he seemed to have burnt through the money that he did have and kind of didn't realise until it was too late there was nothing left. Vanity Fair wraps up their piece with Errol's words from his own autobiography, which I wanted to wrap up Errol's part on. Quote, maybe I haven't been such a loss after all. Anybody who can bring a few moments of happiness to another human life certainly can't be wasting his time in an otherwise fear-ridden and often very drab world. Maybe it hasn't all been so futile. Maybe it wasn't all a waste, unquote. I think it is safe to say that while he left his mark on film, clearly, Errol Flynn squandered the potential that he had. He was an egomaniac, a liar, a drunk, and arguably a rapist and a pedophile. But I am a firm believer that you should not be punished for the sins of the father, and Sean Flynn was also a victim of being the son of Errol Flynn. From everything that I know, Sean was not a drunk, a loser, or a sex offender. He had a social conscience. He cared about those that were less fortunate than him and his mum seemed to have raised him right. Um, and I think, you know, that says all you really need to know. Sean Flynn was Errol Flynn's only son and his oldest child. When his famous father died, Sean was 18, which is an impressionable age where some major life decisions start being made. Errol ensured that Sean was left $5,000 reserved for his college education. Sean knew his father. As I said, he spent a quarter of the year living with them. They shared a middle name, Leslie, which was also the name of my grandfather that looked exactly like Errol Flynn. He did see him and there's a lot of photos whether or not he left much of an impression or how Sean took it when his dad died so suddenly at the age of 50, um, we don't know. Um, but his mother was his primary caregiver and arguably had the most influence or input into his life. As I said, his parents divorced when Sean was young and Sean attended a private boarding school in New Jersey while I believe that his mum Lily lived in Florida when Sean was only two was when Errol Flynn went on trial for two counts of statutory rape, 
and he probably grew up in the shadow of his famous father's indiscretions. You can imagine, you know, as his father becomes more of a joke in Hollywood and more of a kind of outcast, Sean is getting old enough to read the news and have friends that read the news. When his mum died um, many years after Sean vanished, some of his letters to her were made public while others were auctioned off relatively recently, actually. One of them reads, quote, If father and MGM want me to do a picture, they can all go to hell. I just want to be with my family, unquote. In another one, he writes about going for a job in the construction industry. He said it was a job loading cement. In another one, he writes to his mum how much he loves her. He said, quote, I just want to say thanks for home, the car, and just the fact that you are the best mother that I could ever want. And although you never hear me say it, I love you very much. I actually tried to be with you a lot, but everything just didn't seem to go together, unquote. In the mid-1950s, Errol Flynn kind of tried to revive his career not long before he died. And at that point, he was hosting his own TV show, which was called The Errol Flynn Theatre. Errol Flynn openly admitted that he only did the show to pay off debts that he had. Sean would ultimately star in one episode of this and it was filmed in England. Sean graduated high school unsure of which way his life would take him and it was at this formative time that his dad died. So Sean took the $5,000 that Errol Flynn left him, which was a lot at the time, And he enrolled in Duke University, which is a prestigious school in North Carolina, albeit it's not Ivy League. I don't know if Sean ever knew his Australian grandparents or ever came to Australia or had any kind of interaction out here. I'm really not sure. Or whether he went to France much to see his maternal grandparents. Uh, But Sean inherited the best of both of his parents' genetics. And there's so many amazing pictures of Sean um, that over the next couple of weeks or few weeks, I will put up on Patreon and on his episode page um, on unknownpassagepodcast.com. He changes so much throughout them. They tell a story. So he was six foot three, um, you know, blonde hair, muscular, early pictures, he looks like a Ken doll. Um, And then at one point he has a moustache and that's when he looks like the spinning image of Errol Flynn. But in later photos, while he's on the ground in war zones as a photojournalist, he'd lost quite a lot of weight, obviously. Um, And he looks like a different person. And there's, there's just an amazing one of him, I believe, in a cafe in Saigon, He's smoking a pipe. It must be opium because that was pretty widely available then. Um, and a lot of journalists and soldiers, you know, indulged in it. And it's it's a profile picture, and it's it's just a great picture. Um, and I might make that the episode picture for part two. But I really love these later photos. He looks so much more comfortable in himself and less polished. Um. So while on a summer break from university in 1960, just months after Errol died, Sean visited his mum in Florida. Now, one of Sean's closest friends, I think through college, was the actor George Hamilton. You'd know him. If you look him up right now, if you look up George Hamilton, you'd just know him. Um, I'm not sure if he's still around, but he's got one of the most recognisable faces ever. 
but he was getting into acting and he told Sean that he too should be an actor. I think Sean was a bit like, "Mm," because he didn't want to look like a cheap imitation of his dad. But Sean took this and ran with that without proper training. And he ended up starring in a handful of films that he kind of got off the back of being Errol Flynn's son. One of them being a sequel to his father's movie about the mutiny on the bounty, which Errol Flynn had repeatedly lied about his whole life that from the time he was a kid, that his family, that movie was about his family. (laughs) So like, that's like a triple manifestation. Now, Sean was also um, a good singer and he was basically signed to a production company, which is quite small, which I've never heard of called Sage Western Pictures. And around the same time, he signed a record contract with a small label, Um, Now, the few songs that he recorded with this label are now collector's items. I can't play you any because, you know, they're under copyright. Um, But there's a few tidbits out there if you want to go find them. But he had a little bit of success, particularly in European films where they really liked his look. Um, But he kind of wasn't really destined for film like his dad was. And he didn't really have that, that X factor. And it must have been really hard for Sean to admit that he just didn't have it in him to do what his father had excelled at, but that his mother had also excelled at as well. Sean had his father's sense of risk and adventure, hence the book Inherited Risk, and he loved travel. But I think when Sean says that he went and did something, he actually did it as opposed to Errol Flynn. (laughs) In 1964, Sean decided that he was going to go out to Africa and try something completely different. He decided to be a safari guide and for a time he was a game warden in Kenya. When he needed money, he would fly to Italy and he would star in these really low-budget spaghetti westerns. Now, if you've ever wondered why they're called spaghetti westerns, it's because they were all filmed in Italy. (laughs) So in total... His whole filmography spans eight films and none of them achieved commercial success. But I have quite a lot of stills of him in these kind of low-budget spaghetti westerns and I'll, I'll post a few for you in Patreon and on the website when I get around to that. But it was then that Sean made the fateful decision to, instead of being in front of the camera, to get behind the camera and to become a photojournalist in war zones, something that... In 1937, when his father went to Spain, they said that he was like a frustrated war correspondent, that he'd always, Errol Flynn had always been that inside. Um, And this kind of reared its ugly head in Sean as well. And that will kind of put him on a path to what remains a mystery today, what happened to Sean Flynn. That is part one. I hope that you've enjoyed it Um, and it's been a little bit different. I will be back with part two later this week, probably in a week. Um, I'm kind of spacing these out at the moment. Part two, we're going to look at um, Cambodia, um, Sean and his colleague Dana, why why they were in Cambodia um, and we'll go from there. But yeah, um, some interesting stuff coming up. And I hope to be able to share with you some of my own memories and things like that. Um, Visit the website at unknownpassagepodcast.com. Become a patron. It links off the website or you can just search it on the Patreon app, Unknown Passage. Um, 
join the community there. Uh, leave a rating or review. Um, also, Spotify has the new rating system where you can, you know, rate via stars, um, which is pretty good. Um, if you like the podcast but don't want to become a patron but want to contribute to it to, you know, help with the cost, you know, of the website and ongoing costs, you know, for my time and things like that that take away from my paid work, um, feel free to donate to the PayPal. It's unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com. Um, and I think that's it. I will be back shortly. Um, I hope you had a good Easter. I know that's a bit belated. Thank you for sticking with me over the last two years of this podcast. It's been awesome. Um, this Monday is a public holiday in Australia. It is Anzac Day, which um, honours uh, also ties in, I guess, to this kind of episode, um, Australians and New Zealanders that have served um, and that we have lost in various world wars. It's an important day in Australia, um, so lest we forget. Um, and I will be back in a week or so. Thanks. <laughs>